long have you been 17? I am a vampire. And you are mortal. <laughs> Hello and welcome to This Podcast Sucks. The show where we take a bite out of the vampire genre. We'll be following all manner of fanged fiends through the past 127 years of film and television. From Nosferatu to Twilight, I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Elliot. For our first full episode, we'll be covering the classic film and pillar of horror cinema, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu. But Elliot, I thought Dracula with Bela Lugosi was the first vampire film. Why is Nosferatu the first vampire film? Well, Bela Lugosi's Dracula, released in 1931, might be the most famous early vampire film or the most iconic vampire film. Um, Our first blood drinker is in Nosferatu. So Nosferatu was released in 1922, almost 10 years before Bela Lugosi's Dracula. And so, as Tara said, it was directed by F.W. Murnau, um, and our screenplay for this film was written by Henrik Galeen. Um, excuse my pronunciation of these German names. Um, and so for our cast, we have Max Schreck as Count Orlock, Gustav von Wangenheim uh, as Thomas Hutter. While Bela Lugosi's Dracula, released in 1931, might be the most famous early vampire film or the most iconic when we think about vampire cinema, we find our first blood drinker in Nosferatu, um, and, which is actually full-titled Nosferatu Symphony of Horror. Um, and this was released in 1922, and as Tara mentioned, directed by F.W. Murnau. The screenplay was written by Henrik Galeen. And for our cast, we have Max Schreck as Count Orlock, Gustav von Wangenheim as Thomas Hutter, Greta Schroeder as Ellen Hutter, Alexander Granach as Nock, George H. H. Schnell as shipowner Harding, and Ruth Lanshoff as Ruth. And then we've got some other actors, obviously, fleshing out our cast, but these are our main players. The film was produced by Prana Film, which was founded in 1921 by Enrico Diekman and occultist Albin Grau, who, fun fact, was a member of a hermetic order named Fraternitas Saturni, which is Latin for Brotherhood of Saturn, referencing the Roman god of time, the harvest, and death. And he also used the magic name Master Pacific I am not sure if I'm pronouncing that, but um, either way, you can now tell your friends that this film was produced by a production company that was founded by an occultist. And the studio was meant to produce occult and supernatural films, but it folded and declared bankruptcy not long after the release of the film, which was its only production. I, well, I'll just say, I love anyone who has a stage name or, um, <laughs> or, or like a, a second identity for themselves. Um, it, it's very, it feels very vampiric and spooky to have this mm-hmm. like other um, kind of occult life. And mm-hmm. so in line with occultism and some of those spooky, creepy vibes, um, this film is known for its influences from dark romanticism, its inspirations from literary expressionism, and it's often considered one of the earliest um, examples of a German expressionist film alongside 
um, films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And so if you want to take it away with some more details about the film's production and its release. Yeah, absolutely. So the film was released in the Netherlands first on February 16th, 1922. And its German premiere was kind of split across these two events. Um, There was a high society premiere on March 4th where guests arrived in costume dressed as peasants. And its big screen debut took place a little over a week later on March 15th. So that was the premiere of the film, but that still leaves what the film actually was. So tell us a bit about what these peasants were there to see. (laughs) I'm so glad you asked, Elliot, because this film is one about vampires. But first, the setting. It takes place in 1838 in the fictional German town of Visburg and follows Thomas Hutter, who is a real estate agent, or I suppose you would call him a solicitor at that time, who was given a task of going to Transylvania in the service of a new client named Count Orlock, who plans to buy a house right across from Hutter's in Germany. Now, as Thomas Hutter makes his journey through Transylvania, he starts to notice some shady things going on and a lot of people telling him that he really shouldn't be going to visit this count. Now, Elliot, if this is sounding a bit familiar to you, it's because it is. This film is notorious for um, unofficially adapting Bram Stoker's novel Dracula without any copyright. We love a thief. (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah we we especially love it when they don't really go out of their way to hide it aside from changing some names around yes that is one thing that um we will discuss a bit more because as we were preparing for this episode um we just discovered that we watched two different versions of the film because in my version um the credits um, show um, Max Shrek as playing Dracula um, and not Nosferatu. Um, and so there's some uh, some inconsistencies yeah. with the names that indicate yeah. some of the copyright infringement we have going on here. Right. Because when I saw that, I went, excuse me, these are not the names that were made up in a blatant attempt to rip off this property. This is not Count Orlock or... Um, <laughs> Ellen? I think they changed Mina to Ellen. Uh, So, yeah. And that could be because the film entered uh, the public domain in 2019. So, for all of our listeners, just be aware that there are a couple of versions that are floating around for free. And some will have different uh, scores, different um, aspects of the um, film that are changed, such as the tinting for scenes, and in the case of Elliot here, Putting the names back to the original character counterpoints in the book. Yes. And so you are the Dracula expert. You have read the book. <laughs> You've seen more of the Dracula films and, um, mm-hmm. you know, media iterations than I have. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say that the majority of the film is actually pretty faithful in terms of the journey that the, for the purposes of this episode here, I'm just gonna call the Jonathan character. It is pretty faithful in regards to it being about, hey, we have this guy who's a solicitor here and he's kind of an idiot and he's just going 
to be making a, um, a long perilous journey to what I'm sure European audiences or readers at the time thought was, oh my gosh, the very foreign exotic land of Transylvania. And he will be um, meeting with this uh, new client that he will become aware of very early on as if he didn't have enough red flags telling him not to go meet this guy is um, there might be a little something shady about him and he might just want to drink his blood and take over all of Europe, which has its own connotations and issues we'll be getting into later on in this episode. But yeah, in terms of characterization, basic beats of the plot, it's all pretty similar. Things only really start changing up a bit when Count Orlok heads back to Germany in the film, bringing pestilence and the plague with him. And again, we will get more into that as the episode goes on. Yes, but another yeah. example. Oh, I was just going to say another <laughs> example of rats getting a bad rap in media. Yes, it's just, it's so unfair. And yeah, you know, on the one hand, we we like to see we like to see some faithfulness um, when it comes to adaptation. Not that faithful adaptations are always the best adaptations, but in this case, it's just really funny because I don't know how they thought they were just going to get away with this. They they changed so little aside from the ending, and yeah, I think that <laughs> I think that questions around adaptation and myth and folklore are going to come up a lot over the course mm. of you know, our discussions about all of these different vampire films and TV shows because um, vampires are, like, a very ancient figure. And so this concept of, like, who owns a vampire story? Can a vampire story be owned? Um, You know, because the notion of a being that sustains itself through the consumption of blood is global. Um, practically every culture, um, ancient or contemporary, on this planet has an idea of a vampire or, you know, a, a being that survives off of blood. So I think yeah. that the fact that this is coming up so early is really indicative of some of the major things that interest us about vampires. Um, and there are so many other um ways that that manifests in this film in terms of starting off some of the trends that we see to this day, um, you know, over a hundred years later in vampire media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Elliot, would you like to talk a little bit more about the production and more formal aspects of this film? Um, yes, I would be happy to because there are so many things going on with this film um, that are really beautiful and lovely just within the context of the film, but are also really interesting in the larger context of um, cinema. And so we talked a bit about the influences of German Expressionism and this film's role in like the generation of that form and style in cinema. Um, So some other details are that um, this film was released in 1922, but filming took place over three months in 1921. Um, And this was a pretty high risk production in terms of, you know, it was on a shoestring budget. There were a lot of technical constraints. Um, They only had access to one camera and um, 
I'm sure that many of you are aware, but for those who don't know, film and film stock is incredibly expensive. It remains expensive. It's always been expensive. And so only one negative was created of this film um, because of those financial constraints. And so a film negative is um, sort of what it sounds like in terms of the colors are flipped um, and it's sort of, it's the master from which all other versions of the film were made. And so that affected the production in a few ways. Um, one of the most significant ones, I think, is um, in terms of the acting and the blocking. Um, so one thing that I read about when researching this was that because this is a silent film, um, the director and you know all of the other crew people behind the camera were able to communicate with the actors while shots were happening. So because film stock was so limited, because time and resources were so limited, um, the director actually utilized a metronome um, to make sure that actors were hitting the right beats and moving at the appropriate pace for the shot that was planned. Um, and um, Galene, our script writer, also included extensive notes on the script. So there was a lot of writing in the margins on um, things like the lighting, um, the framing, camera angles, the locations, like the details of the set. And for anyone who is experienced with screenwriting, many of those things are atypical now and might actually even be considered rude or inappropriate to include in the script. Because these days we have this idea that the screenwriter's job is to write and that the director's job is to make decisions about things like framing, um, set design, location, light, and that then the cinematographer makes decisions on how best to execute that vision. So even just, you know, talking about this film, we can see how much has changed and, you know, the traditions that we might consider to be ubiquitous um, are actually fairly recent and modern inventions. We, and we love to see a, a professional, well-planned out set. Uh, yes, uh, the, <laughs> um, the benefits of a micromanager, um, yeah. in, in this, in this particular case. Yes. And so speaking of these financial constraints and some of the difficulties this production faced, um, Tara, would you like to tell us the tale of, we've talked about the tale of Nosferatu a little bit. Would you like to tell us the tale of Prana and the tale of how this film was made and uh, distributed to the public and the consequences that arose. Yes, absolutely. Wikipedia and I would love to flesh out that story for you. <laughs> um, yeah, so as mentioned, uh, Nosferatu was produced by the very short-lived Prana film, which was a German studio that was um, established with the intention of making supernatural and occultist films. Yeah, so as Wikipedia is telling me here, Diekmann and Grau gave Henrik Gallin, I am not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, apologies if not, um, the task of writing a screenplay inspired by the Dracula novel, although, you know, it's early film production period, so what's copyright? What's film rights? We don't need that. 
Just adapt it. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I will tell you. So, um, Bram Stoker's uh, widow at the time, I am trying to find her name here. And she, this woman was, if if we had time, (laughs) it would be fascinating to talk about this woman because um, apparently she was an incredibly um, in-demand um kind of socialite before her marriage she was courted mm-hmm. by many men including mm-hmm. oscar wilde um, what yes yeah she... so quite quite <laughs> her, a woman power. yeah I yes mean, yeah power extended to to the, the gays as well um, yes so yeah yeah she must have had um some sort of special something for oscar wilde <laughs> to be um you know seeking her hand um, and yes. you know, her time. So yeah, absolutely. So as I have found, her name is Florence Balcone. So uh, she had basically total control of his estate and the rights to his works. So understandably, she was pretty pissed about this copyright infringement, and she launched a lawsuit. And um, the suit took a little bit of time to resolve. Um, at which point Prana Film declared bankruptcy because they couldn't afford to pay to adapt it. So, you know, better to ask forgiveness than permission, I guess, but kind of ended up destroying Prana Film and all of the potential supernatural spooky films we could have gotten in the future. So, finally, she won the case, and the ruling was declared in July 1925, stating that all negatives and prints of the film should be handed over to her and destroyed. Now, despite this ruling, uh, prints of the film slowly began to resurface in the late 1920s, uh, with American screenings taking place in New York City and Detroit Detroit in 1929. So, I could be wrong, but I believe, technically, there was only one print of this film that survived, that was secretly kept, and that is the print we have today so we were very 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 close to losing this film entirely like a great majority of silent films Mm -hmm. think about like it's said that about 90 percent of silent films are considered lost and Nosferatu was very close to becoming another one of those films but thankfully survived but still you know copyright laws exist for a reason so (laughs) Yeah, and one you mentioned that we almost lost this film, um, and one interesting fact um, is that the actual first first vampire film was a Russian film called Dracula with a K, um, and that film was made in 1920, apparently, and it has been lost to time and to the degree that some film historians dispute that this film ever even existed. But it's entirely possible that two years before Nosferatu, there was a different Russian film that um, committed a vampire to screen for the first time. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. if such a film even did exist, um, we lost it many, many decades ago. Do you think they got the copyright, Elliot? Um, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, probably not. (laughs) Um, yeah, because I feel like maybe if they had, they would have had a bit of a better chance of survival. I also think that if they had achieved copyright, 
there wouldn't be as much of a dispute about whether or not this film ever even existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so to yeah. err on the side of caution, <laughs> I mention this film. But it's entirely possible that this film, like vampires, um, is a myth. <laughs> what? Elliot, don't, don't tell me that now. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so I think, yeah, we've laid out um, basically just kind of the whole history of this film here and Mm -hmm. its production, and do we maybe want to just kind of get into it now? Yes, get into the film itself, (laughs) what happens during that runtime. So as you have uh, kindly done, we've been given a bit of a plot overview Mm -hmm. of the broad strokes of this film. Um, but I think that perhaps it is best we might we might best be served by starting at the start with our opening shot yeah, um, yeah, of this film. Which... Also, just um, oh, sorry, I just wanted like one quick question. Um, had you seen Nosferatu before? I had not seen Nosferatu <gasps> before. I actually have. Don't don't tell anyone. Um, but I actually have very limited experience with silent film and silent cinema. Um, yes, I'm a, I'm a terrible film student, <laughs> terrible scholar. God, what are you doing, Elliot? Um, <laughs> I, I, um, you know, I don't know if I mentioned it before in the previous episode. I did get, um, a major in film studies in undergrad. So I did take a silent film course and, uh, yes, this, while this was not one of the films we watched, we actually watched the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I did watch this film for another class, which was basically about how evil is represented in media. And I wrote a little part of a final paper was about this movie. So I had, yeah, so I had seen the film before. It had been a few years, but um, I think for some of our other listeners, you'd probably be familiar with this film as well through um, the inclusion of Nosferatu's Count Orlock at the end of the Spongebob episode where Squidward and Spongebob are working the night shift at the Krusty Krab and they ask who was flickering the lights so that might have been some people's introduction to this but yes I was I was more familiar with this film but it was fun to watch again after so many so many years and by so many years I mean like five um, <laughs> um well three things. of the three of those years were covid years um so exactly. might as well have been yeah. a century <laughs> oh my god yeah exactly so yes um back to you elliot let's get a little bit more into this plot and this film with the opening scene yes yeah so the reason that i wanted to talk about the opening shot is because mm-hmm. it kind of speaks to some of the larger themes within the film. And so our opening shot is um, a town square and there's in the foreground, we have like a church tower, a bell tower, and we kind of see the square like through the church tower. Um, And so I think that this is a really interesting place to start in our discussion, but also in the film because um, this film is very much about space and about place and mm-hmm. um, and about communities and um, mm-hmm. and kind of like n- not necessarily nationalism because like specific countries aren't necessarily just dis- well he does cross the border into Transylvania um, yeah. mm-hmm. but 
the idea of you know the community space and like a religious community space is very important to the film and protect and protecting those spaces more specifically um and it also brings up some interesting things about this film because as tara um has mentioned to me actually um a lot of this film was shot on location rather than on constructed sets, which was pretty unusual for the time. Um, and so this is where our film starts. And then we very quickly get introduced to our two main characters. I think it might literally be called the book of vampires. Yeah. You know, keeping it nice and clear, but this book, um, yeah, kind of lists out the rules of vampires as they function in this universe, in this film, such as needing to sleep in coffins, um, only being able to travel with consecrated soil. Again, all from Bram Stoker's novel. Just a quick note. It's mm -hmm. the soil, specifically the soil that they were buried in. Oh, okay. Yes. 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 The soil that they were buried in. Thank you. But yeah, also, yeah, just once again, starting um, our classic um you know explain how vampires work in mm -hmm. a vampire film and or show and laying out those kind of ground rules there um of course jonathan or thomas really doesn't pay much attention to that book <laughs> um but a much smarter character his wife will later on yes yeah um <laughs> Nina Ellen, Ellen Nina. Yeah, Nina um, Ellen, I love that. She's really the brains of this operation, I, yes. I would say. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The Van Helsing character does nothing in this movie. <laughs> the Van Helsing uh, character is is interesting. Um, he is, which, yes. uh, yeah, we will get to him. And we will also get to Mina slash, um, no, wait, Nina. No, oh my gosh. Oh, I can't. Because her friend is named Nina. In the oh, movie, which okay. is so close to Mina. Yes. So yeah. we will get to the Mina slash Ellen character, who is always a very interesting character in many adaptations and in the book as well. Um, a lot of people don't know, I think, how interesting her character is. But back to Jonathan Thomas and our first kind of real introduction to Count Orlock when he comes out of the shadows and... Um, yeah, still incredibly creepy and effective. It speaks so much, I think, to Renau's abilities as a director and also to arguably, I'd say, the most memorable slash best part of this movie, which is Max Shrek as Count Warlock. Yes, it is a very, very striking um, kind of first, first sight. You know, there's um, horror films... There's always a lot built up around that first time that you see the monster. Um, and so I think that this is a great example of that um, money shot almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, and it's simple but effective. I think the camera, yeah, we got our one camera locked down on a tripod. And I want to say it's, um, it's like a long shot, medium long shot, mm -hmm. which for our listeners just means... Um, people in the frame it's from feet to the head they can see all of that and they can kind of see more of their surroundings but yeah and we just see the dark kind of cavernous void of the castle and a figure slowly walking out straight to the camera from it and um it is count orlock in his very striking very iconic makeup but also makeup that comes 
with its own problematic implications, which do you want to get into that now, Elliot, or maybe later? Yeah, I think um, I think we can kind of um, preface it here and then kind of get into the meat of it a yeah. little more mm -hmm. later. Sure. Um, but one of the things about his costuming is, well, he has... Um, uh, our actor, Max Schreck, was quite tall. So he's this very thin, looming figure um, with these kind of long, kind of bat pointy ears, very long nose, um, mm -hmm. and um, very visible sharp teeth. And unlike our kind of modern image of vampires as having two um, sharp incisors, two fangs, um, Count Orlok's... Um, all of his teeth are sharp and all of his teeth are fang-like. Um, and he has like a bit of a hunched back and very, very long fingers that end in these kind of claws. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about how um, many consider this to be related to or, um, or like a direct example of an anti-Semitic caricature of a Jewish person. Um, and... That is something that we'll talk about in terms of like the costuming and the visual design, but also the implications for like the larger story, um, because this film is about the other and it is about otherness and it is also about xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment and the idea of an invading force from the outside, um, bringing destruction, bringing death, bringing illness. Um, mm -hmm. And so that is a very significant element of this shot um, and sort of the cultural relevance and the cultural effect of this film. Um, another thing that I want to mention about this shot that Tara kind of touched on is like um, this kind of wider framing that shows like the building and that Orlok is kind of emerging from the shadows of this building. Um, he is framed by a stone archway and he kind of comes from the shadows of this archway. And that is a really common technique that is returned through to throughout this, um, throughout the film is a frame within a frame. So characters framed by doorways, framed by arches, um, framed by tunnels um, through the castle and things like that. Um, so that is a really lovely and beautiful um, kind of element of the film that produces some of those striking um, shots that, you know, remain impressive to this day. Um, so it's, you know, it's interesting that this moment is kind of one of the, one of the strongest moments of the film visually, but it also introduces um, one of the most kind of contentious or, um, controversial elements of the film, which is the relationship to anti-Semitism and to really harmful stereotypes and um, cultural images built up around um, the Jewish faith and Jewish people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And as Elliot said, this is um, all things we will get more into as we go along. And um, segue, but for anyone who is interested, um, the castle that uh, Count Orlok slash Dracula's um, castle was, uh, the setting was the Orova Castle, which is a castle situated above the Orova River in a village in Slovakia. I'm, I'm hesitating to pronounce the village's name because I just don't want to butcher it, but um, 
yeah, Wikipedia here says it is considered to be one of the most beautiful castles in Slovakia. And yeah, it looks like it's still standing. Which is actually the case for a decent number of the buildings and facades that we see in the film. Yes. Many of them remain standing. Um, and, you know, you can go visit these places and live out your own mm. little Nosferatu <laughs> moment. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I'm sorry, I hate to be that person. It's like, all beautiful, love that it's accurate. And, you know, these are real castles and the setting. Like, that's all so cool. But gosh, I'm just like... Can it be a little bigger? I want a big old gothic just video game castle. <laughs> like, I want the castle, like Dracula's castle in Castlevania that fucking moves. Yes, <laughs> and, it is a... And, and it teleports. Is a, it is a bit it's, of a conservatively sized yes, castle. Yes, it is conservatively sized. It's, um, you know, we'll get, we'll get more into those castles as we go on through our vampire film history. I think kind of culminating with the Bram Stoker's Dracula, that castle is a character in and of itself. But getting back to the story, Thomas slash Jonathan meets Count Orlock. You know, nothing, nothing weird about this guy at all. Has a nice meal planned for him. And at this meal, while... Jonathan slash Thomas is giving Orlock a lot of side eyeing. <laughs> um, he cuts his finger while trying to slice off a piece of lovely bread for his in, meal. In what is possibly an example of the worst <laughs> and dumbest oh way to slice a slice like, of bread. It was giving Kendall Jenner trying to cut a cucumber yes, vibes um, a bit. Um, yeah. Or Benedict Cumberbatch slicing a tomato. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, guys, don't never cut towards yourself. Yes. Never for any situation, whatever you are doing with a sharp object, cut away. <laughs> yes, and he really gets a grip on the whole loaf. You know, not like, very much in the spirit yeah. of sharing. He's just like, <laughs> gets the whole thing. And... Yeah, and I mean, it didn't seem too tough. It seemed like it would have been reasonable to just rip it off, a piece off with your hand. Um, but then we wouldn't have. <laughs> Um, our iconic scene, again, from the book, I'm pretty sure, again, it's been a while since I've read the book, and, like, sometimes these scenes just become so ingrained into, like, the the Dracula film canon, you're almost like, wait, was that in the book, or is that just something that's been in these films for mm -hmm. so long, now we have to have it. But yeah, so Jonathan slash Thomas cuts himself, and Orlok goes, your precious blood, and tries to get a big old... I don't know, suck taste of that blood coming out of the thumb, to which Jonathan Thomas... Yeah, he shows inappropriate like, interest. <laughs> he shows inappropriate interest. He invades some personal space there. And this is the moment where I think Jonathan... It finally clicks. Like, he realizes yes. maybe there, this dude is not on the up and up. I think he was made... I think he was... Um... We do get the sense that he was a little uncomfortable or even frightened mm -hmm. by Orlok's appearance. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he was a little caught off guard by the carriage. Um, yes. And so, but the, you're right that this is the first time that we see, like, true fear or um, mm -hmm. true doubt about this situation and the legitimacy of the real estate deal that he's supposed to be there for. And... Um, he does seem to be a bit concerned for his safety for the first time. 
Yes, the self-preservation instincts finally kick in. And so another kind of effective thing, I think this really speaks to Max Schreck's instincts as an actor in his performance, and also, fun fact, he went apparently full method and stayed in character throughout this shoot, which I think I remember reading, like, he actually, he, like, honestly scared some production members. <laughs> Understandably. Yes. <laughs> like, I, you know, it's such a, yeah, it's a, it's a striking, it's a striking appearance. And just um, going back to the strength of his acting instincts and choices, the stillness. I, I appreciate how still and deliberate his mm-hmm. movements are. And as we see in the scene where Jonathan Thomas is, you know, backing away in very visibly distressed and in a lot of fear, and Count Orlok just slowly walks up to him and kind of backs Jonathan into this chair almost. Mm-hmm. And Orlok's yes. just like, all right, I hope you or like hope you enjoy like late night talks because we're gonna stay up we're gonna party because gosh when the sun comes up comes up i gotta sleep so yes there is something um there is like an intimacy to the moment um yes yes because he um you know he comes close to him and he's like your precious blood in a bit of a creepy way but also perhaps in a like in a hostly mm-hmm. manner, he does yeah. kind of back him into this armchair <laughs> by the fire, and he's like, mm-hmm. let's sit, let's talk. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yes, you're right. It is It is funny that he's like, oh, you've just traveled by carriage for, you know, possible weeks on end. Um, why don't we sit and talk till <laughs> the dawn? Um, After I just tried to drink the blood from your thumb. Yeah, no, I'm glad you pointed that out. There is an intimacy to it. Um, For our listeners who do not know, F.W. Murnau was a gay man. So it's entirely possible that the kind of homoerotic subtext, which was already there in Mm -hmm. the original novel between Mm -hmm. Jonathan and Dracula, is being um, kind of hinted at a little bit here, perhaps. And maybe um, I could be wrong, but perhaps Jonathan's fear in this moment is not necessarily directly related to the fact that his host just tried to drink his blood um (laughs) it's his it's his no homo moment where he's like yes i don't sit by the fire (laughs) (laughs) and talk with guys who just yeah i just suck my thumb (laughs) yes um i think it's also important to mention because desire is Mm. such a massive part of vampire lore vampire iconography the the metaphors that we use vampires for you know like the desire for blood Mm -hmm. the desire for eternal life um the desire for violence and savagery um yeah and And like the desire to be consumed by another entity almost like like you know um, absolutely Desire going in both ways, you know, our desire for vampires and then vampires' Mm -hmm. desire for us Mm -hmm. and for, you know, for the flesh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Desire is a huge component of that. Um, And kind of segueing into, like, sort of the next scene where Count Orlok sees the portrait of the Mina slash Ellen character, who is uh, Thomas's wife, we get into this um, idea of 
especially in subsequent vampire media, of the vampire um, finding or seeing one person. It is typically a woman because mm-hmm. society. Um, and it being like that one, like you yes. are the special. Yes, you are. <laughs> you are the delicious one. You're the. You are the delicious yeah. one. You will be my partner in eternity, forever. And um, yeah, so. I think, because that was not necessarily, that is a thing in the original Bram Stoker novel, which I think more has to do with the um, kind of racist implication of the other coming in and taking these pure British white yes, women, basically. Yes, absolutely. Um, for, quote, for his quote-unquote own. Um, that is still the case in this movie but in terms of just i think establishing like this you know kind of romantic element i don't know if romantic element is the right term but having essentially a human character as a romantic potential um for the vampire character Mm -hmm. i think that is kind of first established here um with and again it's typically heterosexual it's typically a male vampire and it's typically a female woman um, and specifically, um, I don't know if it's in this scene or in a later scene, but it is specifically foregrounded as well, like the purity of yes. these women. Um, and yes, well, Ellen and Thomas are married, so there isn't necessarily the implication of a virgin or virgin blood. Mm-hmm. It does, the book that they're reading does specifically mention um, a woman who is pure of heart. Um mm-hmm. And so, like you're saying, that ties into this idea of an outside force corrupting, um, because it's not mm-hmm. just like a white woman that we're protecting. It's like a pure of heart, a kind, exactly. gentle, you mm-hmm. know, white woman who um, who needs protection. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, very traditionally feminine kind of um, conservative female character. But as we'll get into later on, I think there's some interesting elements to the Ellen Mina character, um, as there are in the book. Um, but yeah, so in the scene, while Jonathan Thomas is sealing the deal, and by deal I mean real estate deal. <laughs> yes, yeah. The real estate, this real estate deal, and Count Orlock sure does love mentioning how it's going to be great that they're neighbors. Um. <laughs> yes, he comments. Um, Jonathan Thomas is really trying to get Orlock to sign some papers. Mm-hmm. And Orlock is really just interested in talking about Ellen's lovely throat. Yes. And yes, you how know, excited like, he is to be across the way. Yeah. Yeah, a subtle drop, um, you know, when you <laughs> see, see your bros partner on yes. social media um <laughs> <laughs> the totally normal first thing to say um, your wife has a yeah a lovely neck um so yes and i think that um scene is i could be wrong there there are a few scenes in the castle where jonathan thomas is kind of like oh it's daytime it's fine oh this is great i what was i so stressed about the night before he writes a letter to yes. nina ellen but then there is the famous scene where Count Orlock first comes to him at night to drink his blood. Mm-hmm. It's actually the second time oh, okay. that he drinks his blood. It's the first yes. time that we see yeah. it. 
because before the signing of the papers, we have another kind of idyllic waking up where yeah. Jonathan Thomas like kind of he's, wakes in the chair and he stretches and he um he's, he's like such a morning person. Yeah, he loves it. Um and so <laughs> and then he looks in a mirror and um the image is too washed out, um, but we do learn in the card that he sees um, bite marks on his neck. And when he writes his letter to um, to Ellen, he um, describes the bite marks and says, some sort of insect, I, I don't know, but don't worry <laughs> about me. Everything's great, essentially. <laughs> yeah, we love to see the optimism. Um, yes. And... Yes, yeah, so we have the very famous scene of uh, Dracula, Count Orlock, coming to drink Jonathan Thomas's blood for the second time. And again, we get that um, kind of recurring, um, or that repeated image here of him slowly walking mm -hmm. towards the camera, which is very creepy and effective. Oh, gives me, ugh, I don't. I don't like that. I was always afraid as a kid of like just being in my bed and like something like coming towards the bed kind yes. of like yes the, out of the, the dread the dread mm -hmm. of you know your space of the you know your bed being invaded um, mm -hmm. exactly and yes and this is also where we cut back to Germany and we see Mina slash Ellen character who has been staying with some friends we see that she might be psychic. <laughs> um yes some questionable is, um, tele telepathic psychic abilities yes. yes and i think this is the uh kind of the the first time this is introduced with the mina character i want to say this was not in the bram stoker's dracula novel there was the issue of her being connected to dracula after he um, makes her drink his blood towards the end of the book but this is the first example I think of in films, yeah, definitely in films, uh, maybe ever, of the Mina Ellen character having almost this kind of psychic connection with Dracula or Count Orlock. And that kind of feeds into like the larger changes in her character that I think is retained in subsequent adaptations where Mina in the book goes from this very kind of, you know, super, you know, just like super intelligent, rational, like working class, quote unquote, modern woman, mm -hmm. you know, hardworking prostitute ethic, you know, middle class, you know, she's learning shorthand, she's a school teacher, like, she is like the modern woman in some regards. And I think this is movie with its characterization is the first time we kind of get the change of Mina into like a gothic psychic girl here yes with delicate sensibilities we with mostly see yeah we mostly see nina kind of looking wistfully through windows or wistfully at yeah. the sea and she does quite a bit of swooning um yes yeah yeah absolutely i mean but don't get me wrong i do love my nina as psychic goth girl yes. um good for her I, yeah good for her we we get that a lot in the bram stoker's dracula adaptation um, but yeah, so we are cross-cutting between the scene of Count Orlock having drunk Jonathan's blood and Mina Ellen having this kind of premonition or, you know, basically the, she has the, the Obi-Wan, I feel it, a great disturbance. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> and, yeah. 
in the force. And I also wrote this down because um, she was sleepwalking as well, which mm-hmm. was concerning to her host who called the doctor. And the doctor says, harmless blood congestions. I'm like, my dude, that's a blood clot. Well, it's this is again a fascinating difference because for me it said um a sudden fever. And oh. um fever is actually attributed to several different things. Um mm-hmm. Jonathan Thomas's boss, um, who also mm-hmm. develops a kind of strange relationship with Orloff, he is also committed for a fever and mm-hmm. When Jonathan Thomas himself is being treated for, you know, he becomes sick as well. Um, The Mm -hmm. nurse that is attending to him also tells him that he is afflicted with a fever. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, well, that makes a lot more sense than a doctor calmly saying this woman has a blood clot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I think it fits with this notion of... um, immigrants bringing illness because there have been Mm -hmm. a lot of times throughout history where xenophobic sentiment has kind of been undergirded by the idea of you know like like a you know like a yellow fever or a spanish flu or you know like many other kind of examples throughout history so i think in some ways Mm -hmm. fever also kind of speaks to this idea of the other um, perhaps yeah, a bit better absolutely. than than mysterious benign <laughs> blood clots. <laughs> yes. So we um, come back to a shot of the sunrise, which you know we gotta have our visual motifs to tell us when it is night and when it is day, because it's always day in this film. And we get Jonathan Thomas kind of exploring the castle some more and finding. Dracula sleeping in his coffin, first ever visual filmic depiction of a vampire in their coffin. And Mm -hmm. very creepy, I might add, because uh, Dracula is sleeping with his eyes open and he's completely still. It is a very creepy shot. Yes. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Eyes open, yeah. Yeah, eyes open a la Gandalf. In Return of the King. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no. Very, very creepy um, shot, absolutely. And then we cut pretty soon to Dracula getting ready for the big move, you know, doing all of the work himself, which, you know, he didn't have to do in the book. In the, bo- in the book, like, he outsourced that. He hired some local movers. But here we see him speed loading his coffins on... <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I, there were, there were a few moments where, um, where the frame rate is manipulated to make something happen faster. So Mm -hmm. the film is sped up a bit. Um, and -hmm. I think that happens like three or four times throughout the film. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Dracula gets ready for the move and heads off. Oh no. And Jonathan manages to escape. By lowering himself a hefty 20 feet, it looks like, from the castle window. Yes. Yeah, with his um, nice, again, a sort of kind of cartoonish, almost like a bedsheet rope that he Yeah, constructs. yeah. Oh, yeah, the classic bedsheet rope. Um, and again, it's just, you know, 
speaks to um the, the realistic size of this castle you know so it's um <laughs> yes the, the castle wall that you can um that you like, can yeah that you can climb with a twin size bed sheet pretty much like i said it looks like he was dropping himself from about 20 feet but um yeah, yeah um, he escapes so um yes. the demeter and i was surprised watching this movie how much we kind of pun out um on this ship and with the um crew Mm-hmm. Because this is um, usually glossed over in a lot of Dracula adaptations. I um, think the pacing or... is um, is a, is unique in this film. The pacing is interesting. So you're right that we yeah. do... It does feel like, oh, we're on a, a boat now. And we mm-hmm. kind of stay on the boat for, um, for an interesting amount of time. You're correct. Yes. Yeah, I mean, even before we're on the boat, there is the scene of them just getting the coffins and kind of doing a logistical outline of the shipments and everything and they find a bunch of rats and this brings us to um, another um, recurring motif in the movie which is rats the plague you know so much rat Mm -hmm. hate in this movie i think at this point we're also introduced to the van helsing character i forget Mm -hmm. what his um, name is in this movie but we'll just call him the Van Helsing character, and he is introduced as a professor, um, giving uh-huh. a kind of study, like a case study exhibit on the nature of the Venus flytrap because symbolism. Yes, the carnivorous. I think he calls it the 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 like the first carnivore of the world of vegetables or something. <laughs> um, I love that. Yes, first carnivore of the world of vegetables. Yes, so again, we get that kind of, um, that theme of nature, and the film's focus on nature, and um, it's uh, the, the natural processes of animals, insects, plants, and almost that kind of documentarian look at um, mm-hmm. this, with the close-up of the Venus flytrap closing over the fly. And so then, um, also, I think this is where... Van Helsing's character says the blood is the life. Very famous line in Dracula movies. And let's see, then we get back to the ship. Beautiful long kind of tracking shot closing in on mm-hmm. the ship. When I first saw that, I was like, wait a minute, how'd they do that? I'm like, oh, yes. oh another ship. <laughs> there's like, there's several very impressively steady shots of mm-hmm. the waves and the water um oh yeah yeah so really really impressive camera work um happening yes. on the ship um yeah and so we get to the demeter and can i just say this crew was rocking some looks yes, I don't yes. Know. <laughs> were these mutton chops real <laughs> that is the question <laughs> There's a lot of interesting facial hair. Um, yeah, like in the film. Yeah, like one of the captains. Um, yeah, had a lot of lot of hair. It was just a very hairy man. And um, like again, we see that kind of early silent film makeup look, which makes everyone kind of look very striking because they their faces are just caked with makeup. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, very hairy crew and they start to realize that their passengers are becoming ill and we come to another famous shot of Dracula rising out of the coffin 
like just plank straight, mm -hmm. super stiff, just rises straight up and then stands very still. A very striking, memorable image. Yes. Also very creepy. Yes. And significant cinematically because this was actually one of the earliest examples of stop motion. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, so the techniques they used to create that shot um, later um, went on to become like the techniques that we use for stop motion um, animation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, very cool. And so, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Count Orlock makes his way through the crew and kills them off before the ship um, arrives in Weisberg, Germany, bringing plague and pestilence and rats and yes. oh the oh the implications. Yes, <laughs> we have this amusing moment where they unload the coffins and open it, and just like a swarm of rats comes out and <laughs> almost at like all but one of the shipyard workers just flees. And then there's one brave guy who tries to fight the rats off with a shovel. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, he brings, he's bringing death and plague with him. And again, I know I keep saying it, but there's just so many iconic shots of this character. Another iconic shot is of a low angle shot of Dracula walking um, kind of across the ship, um, very slowly, um, mm -hmm. looks great. And then we get to <laughs> Dracula just strolling around with his coffin, you know, in the streets. Yes. I was curious if the implication there is that he has like enhanced strength or super strength that he's able to carry his six yeah. foot long dirt filled <laughs> coffin. <laughs> I would think so, because um, he already has like super speed apparently, because he loaded them up so fast. Yeah, and um, he and he floated. You know, we had this, and he also, mm -hmm. um, we also get the sense that he's able to become incorporeal or turn invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, where we yes. have a moment where he, um, we have two moments, I believe, where he walks through walls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, another sort of similar thing from the book where um, he could basically. They say something like Dracula can turn tight, like he can slip through keyholes. Like I don't, okay. Nice. <laughs> that that's one that's one trick, I guess. Um, but yes, so we get Dracula finally deboarding and trying to find a place, or I guess, well, his place that he bought um, to place his coffins. But meanwhile, there is turmoil in the streets of Weisberg as people are being struck ill suddenly with this plague. Mm -hmm. And I think at this point, Jonathan slash Thomas has made it back home. To yes, him. he has. Um, he has. And mm -hmm. but he had a he had to stay in a hospital. It's yeah. um, it was a or struggle. A nunnery, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. Violent brain fever. You know. Yes. yes. <laughs> Victorian illness. Um, fever of the brain. Um, fever of the brain. <laughs> yes. Um. Yes. So he comes back to warn his guests, and during this time. Ellen slash Mina finds the vampire book mm -hmm. that was at the inn Jonathan had stayed at, outlining the rules of vampires and how they function. And this is where she reads that a vampire can only be defeated if he, I guess, or she, um, is distracted long enough 
um, drinking the blood of a woman who is pure of heart so that they do not hear the cock's first crow and know that it is sunrise. Mm-hmm. Yes, so. and that it must be willingly shared. I don't know if yes, you it noted must be. that. Yeah. Yes, it's all about consent here. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, what a, what a good guy. Um, Orlock is mm-hmm. he's like gotta gotta give it willingly. Um, yeah. Although we see him super not do that. Um, no, we yeah. we don't, and um, we get more we get more of like a Orlock Nosferatu being like a very lovelorn kind of incelish character in the uh, Herzog remake in the seventies, and I imagine we're gonna get. We're definitely going to get more of that in the Robert Hager's one coming out next the, year. The first incel. Uh, you, you heard it here. Uh, we found the first incel. It was it yeah. was Nosferatu. <laughs> it was, um, although, interesting yeah. note, I should correct myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Nosferatu is not the character. Nosferatu is a Romanian word for vampire. Yes. Um, and <laughs> right, Romanian, right. yeah, mm-hmm. Romanian vampire mythology is interesting because they have the concept of dead and alive vampires. Mm-hmm. So Strigoi. Yeah, so there's Nosferatu are vampires, Strigoi are living vampires, and Moroi are dead vampires. Oh um, my gosh. So in the interest, yes, um, for, for any of those like vampire um you know, real committed vampire fans. <laughs> I I will acknowledge that Nosferatu is the word for vampire. Count Orlock is mm. a Nosferatu. Yes. Thank you, thank you for the correction and for that information. We we strive on this series <laughs> to give you the most up to date. Yes, total and, and accurate. exhaustive accuracy. <laughs> vampire lore. Yes. Uh, yes. So. Mina slash Ellen reads this information and goes, well, no one else is really doing anything about this here. Um, I'm the only pure of heart woman in this town. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm not like the other girls. Um, (laughs) And also, meanwhile, like, I know we haven't really mentioned it much, but um, Jonathan slash Thomas's boss, Nock, I believe is his name. I think so, yeah. He is kind of given the Renfield character, and Renfield is a character in the original novel who is kind of both a, oh, this is an example of worst case scenario and what could happen to you if you become one of Dracula's victims slash fledglings. He also exists to kind of just be expository man and be like, no, he's coming. You don't know what you're up against. Um, So that is basically the knock character in this movie. And there's just, like, a little kind of moment that goes nowhere where he escapes, I guess. Or, I don't know, he's, like, running around and they're like, we gotta catch him. And he's just chilling on the rooftop. And, um, but yes, he, he is. I think um, that, I think that he kind of brings this element of, like, the angry mob with pitchforks mm, and torches. Um, so which is interesting because like he's on this roof and people start throwing rocks at him. So yes, he plays the Renfield character who um, espouses lines such as the master is coming. And um, I think Orlog kills him off screen. 
he's kind of done with him. <laughs> it's there. So that's one of the ambiguous plot elements to me. Like there are some things that I find that were a little harder to track. Like mm-hmm. Van, the Van Helsing character is introduced in a card and just kind of appears from nowhere and then has yeah. no relevance aside from what, what is a very cool moment with the Venus flytrap, but it <laughs> yeah. is really kind of an aside from the film in a way. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's not the first time he's introduced teaching a lecture. We get that again with Anthony Hopkins' um, mm-hmm. portrayal in the Bram Stoker's Dracula version. So I guess, you know, it's just kind of like visual imagery reinforcing this man is a learned academic. So. Yes, yeah. Um, this idea of bringing scientific veracity yes. to yes. a folklore and a myth, like a mythic tale kind of thing, um, is exactly. really interesting. Exactly. And yes, so we come to the final very famous scene where Ellen slash Nina um, commits a um, act of self-sacrifice to save mm-hmm. everyone and Count Orlock comes to drink her blood. Um, again, I don't know if this is where we get the shot, but we have the shot of him just... <laughs> Again, very still with his hands up, looking out the window right across yes, um, yeah. the street. He's he's just staring, like waiting for her to appear in the window. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, I mean. And he, then she kind of does something that indicates that he can come on over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she texted him, you up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so he comes and drinks her blood and you know as he is approaching the shadow of his hand i think this is where oh again another famous shot we get um him the shadow going up the staircase yes Um, and the shadow of his hands kind of creeping up her chest and her um and her breasts to her face yes Yes, Um, there is a, a sexualized component to this blood drinking that is not there yeah um and I, I will say, in addition to being very famous and undeniably beautiful and striking, um, those shots are also impressive for their difficulty. Um, mm-hmm. I have done some shooting on Bolex film cameras, um, and I believe that that's what they shot on as well. Mm-hmm. And silhouettes are some of the most difficult shots to do yeah. on film um, because your exposure has to be right on um and the focus also has to be um right on and focusing a shot on a bolex camera or any film cameras is difficult because you don't have a a, uh you don't have like a monitor built into your camera um you have no idea if your focus was right um until you Mm -hmm. develop that film and get it back and so that's why if you see images of old film productions or even now you'll see people with rulers and tape measures so Mm -hmm. that they can know exactly how far the subject is from the camera um so those shots that you see of the silhouettes and there are a few of them um that would have required quite a lot of precision and preparation um Mm -hmm. you know on the part of the camera operator and so that's another reason that those shots are so impressive and and remain impressive Mm -hmm. to this day yeah yeah absolutely um so count orlock dracula comes and drinks um nina's blood and we 
see. Well, we don't see. Don't we see a chicken crown? Or we do. We, we, we do. get yeah. We get a nice insert. Insert. We get a nice mm-hmm. insert shot of the rooster crowing the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and um, Count Orlock slowly looks up. You know, walks to the window because that's always what you want to do if you are trying to avoid sunlight. <laughs> and we see um, him strike a stance of one hand on his chest, the other reaching outward mm-hmm. in profile before poof, he is gone and there is a bit of flame left. So first on screen, death of a vampire from sunlight. Yes. And yeah. This established that aspect of the lore. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So the evil is defeated, but at a cost, Ellen slash Mina dies and she we... does i thought she was yes. fine <laughs> no hold on she... <laughs> wow okay this really uh, this really changes my view of the yes film. i thought she yes. shook it off you know <laughs> no no like they don't have blood transfusions they don't know what her blood type is um so yeah no unfortunately she she commits uh she sacrifices her life to save mm-hmm. everyone and dies, and Count Orlock uh, slash Dracula is defeated, the evil is defeated, and we get a final shot, a great final shot of a castle, which is Count Orlock's castle, on the cliff. End film. Yes, and it's collapsed into ruins, and mm-hmm. um, one of the, you know, as you mentioned, this is a, a really, um, really interesting shot, it, because it also ties all the way back to our first shot of the town yes, square. Yes. And mm-hmm. we return to that idea of space and of um, mm-hmm. and of space that must be protected. And so, you know, we start our film with a shot of, you know, a bell tower and a church tower. Um, mm-hmm. And then we end on the vanquished ruins of our invading others space. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. It's yeah. a great, a great book end um moment as a contrasting image to the Mm -hmm. opening shot yeah all right so that was Nosferatu Elliot what'd you think (laughs) (laughs) um it was really it was really interesting I was surprised by how much the film was about the idea of plague it really Mm -hmm. did not feel like it was about Orlok and it was more about the effect that Orlok had on this town that he arrived to um because like we don't get any sense of like how did Orlock become a vampire? What was his human life yeah. like? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really even get a sense of his motivation for moving to this town. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's very much about the effect that he has. Um, and yeah, he he basically becomes a simple. He has no dialogue. Yes. For like the second half of the film. Yes. Yeah. It's really which is really interesting and. Um, I think just speaking to those themes, um, you know, about, you know, about illness and um, plague mm-hmm. and, you know, um, an invading mm-hmm. force. While all of the stuff with like our Renfield proxy and Nina figuring out how she can vanquish Orlock, we have some really, really striking shots um, of how the town is handling this, you know, where we have. A shot of a man going door to door and marking the doors mm-hmm. with crosses and we also have this really gorgeous wide shot of 
a procession of coffins slowly being carried mm-hmm. down the streets. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was really struck by the prevalence of those themes and that we don't really spend so much time with our vampire doing vampire stuff. Um, so yeah. that was something that really interested me. Yeah, definitely. I think you're correct that the film certainly focuses much more on the effects of Orlock Dracula and um, kind of how he is not even necessarily an individual or character in this movie. He he represents basically, like you said, the other. This um, contrast the um, you know the idea of like nature and life and as opposed to death. You know this is a dead thing that still moves and walks and causes chaos everywhere uh-huh. and death. Um, yeah, we have that opening line where uh, Jonathan picks flowers for Mina and she says, why'd you have to kill them? Beautiful flowers. Kind of already introducing this idea of life and death. That line was not in my version of the film that oh I saw. Oh my God. <laughs> at all, which I feel the... like does a real, really <laughs> undercuts some of the themes later. I would have yeah. really, I would have really liked oh. to have seen that line. <laughs> I'm so sorry. From now on, we will make sure we are watching. I don't think we have to worry about this in the future, but we'll make sure. Same, same. No, I actually, I actually think that the differences are really, really Mm -hmm. interesting and, and very much reflect, um, the, the difficulties of archiving film history and like the, Mm -hmm. the, the complications of archival work and preservation in film, um, yeah, like um, the original score for the film is lost. We don't know yes. what it is. It has multiple different scores that are used. And yeah. I'll be honest, watching the movie, the score that accompanied the version I was watching was pretty consistently going throughout the whole thing to the point where I was like, I think some of these shots would be a lot more effective, honestly, if it was just completely silent. I also um, had continuous music throughout. Yeah. Um, and yeah, thank you think, for mm-hmm. bringing up the multiple scores because um, that's another interesting tie into film history. You know, like during the silent film era, um, what was most common was that a movie theater would have a pianist. Um, and so at the front of the, you know, at the front of the theater kind of below the screen there would be a guy sitting at a piano and he would play live music through the duration of the film um and this was such a standard part of the cinema experience that there are actually like we have some remaining there were books of score music that were produced for musicians that played during um films and there would it was like this massive index and so you would have um there would be a section that's like songs to play while an airplane is flying like mm-hmm. songs to play when the characters are at a beach um so you've also you've touched on um something that was unique and interesting about Nosferatu but also something that ties into um like again some of our history in this form Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And I think another 
theme we, you know, said we would address later on and um, I think is very important to this film's legacy and its history and shouldn't be overlooked is certainly the theme of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and how this is not unique in terms of the context in which this film was made, in which specific film kind of period it was made. Mm-hmm. Um it was made, I think, as I said earlier, during the Weimar Republic in Germany, which was, um, I want to say, like, it was like early 1900s to, you know, later 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you had Weimar cinema, and that's where you had famous kind of expressionist works like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. You had Metropolis. But... um there, there's a lot of recurring themes in these films um, that um, kind of uncomfortably show maybe the state of mind that the German public was in, um, mm-hmm. especially in the case of this film, when it comes mm-hmm. to sort of this idealized romantiz- the romanticization of... Um, like an old Germany, a bucolic kind of pastoral, um, I think, to the motherland. To yeah, to quote my literature, a Gemeinschaft as a um, kind of idea of mm-hmm. Germany and Count Orlock rep- being a representative of this nefarious ulterior other who is going to come and bring plague and death and destroy that and take pure Mm -hmm. German women. Yes. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's also significant to mention, like you're giving us some context for Mm -hmm. the feelings of nationalism. But, um, one of the reasons that this film, one of the conversations around this film is around anti-Semitism is that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, anti-Semitism was not invented by the Holocaust. Um, the Holocaust was the culmination of centuries of anti-Semitic sentiment and specifically like a, a concerted ramping up of anti-Semitism in, you know, the 10 or so years leading up to World War II and the Holocaust. Um, and so, you know, some of those old, old anti-Semitic ideas, um, you know, the idea of, like, Jewish people bringing illness, um, you know, like, before the Holocaust, there were, um, you know, pogroms and, like, mass killings that happened historically throughout Eastern Europe, you know, where, like, Jewish communities were burned and, and, you know, Jewish people were killed and burned, um, and so, you know, those things, um, were, like, ancient even at that time you know like these this was not like this wasn't a new idea um i think is important to foreground and mention which is one of the reasons why it's it's important to talk about this um because like putting it in a filmic context might have been new um but these like cultural sentiments and these like cultural biases were not new by any means Yes, absolutely. And also, as we said, the anti-Semitic connotations of this film can be seen quite clearly in the makeup design for Count Orlock. And so that brings us to kind of the 
the issue of maybe how intentional or unintentional was this, um, you know, depiction on the part of F.W. Murnau, Mm -hmm. who himself was um, a gay man and uh, by all accounts was close with Jewish people, had Jewish friends. Yeah, and Um, worked closely with Jewish people because I think it's important to mention that German expressionism was a cinematic style that was very much influenced and defined by the work of Jewish filmmakers. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And one of the ways that noir cinema came to be in America was that many Jewish people fled Germany and fled Eastern Europe um, and came to America. And we wanted those people to work in our film industry because that style was so popular so renowned and we you know like we wanted a piece of that so you know this was not done altruistically Mm -hmm. um but we did welcome jewish filmmakers into the american film space so that they could help us cultivate the noir aesthetic um Mm -hmm. and so that's another complicating factor as well was that this was a style that was developed by jewish filmmakers and jewish artists um, fairly significantly. Yes. So the the intention behind the character design of Count Orlock on the part of Murnau and other production members and creatives, um, while not necessarily intentional, was, you could definitely say, careless. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and to kind of reinforce that it's um you know intent regardless you know Mm -hmm. can only can only excuse or make up for so much because when the thing is out there it is out there and people will take that in whatever way they will i have an excerpt here from an article from about the film from grunge where it says One member of the audience at Nosferatu's premiere leaped on this concept, that concept being anti-Semitism. And that was Julius Stryker, who would become chief editor of Hitler's anti-Semitic newspaper, Der Sturmer. And according to an article from the blog of the Museum of the Jewish People at Beit Hot Futsot, sorry if I mispronounced that, Stryker was so transfixed by the film that he returned to watch it repeatedly Later on in the pages of Der Sturmer, Stryker would repeatedly use art and prose to conflate Jews with vampires, making Jewish people out to be rat-faced, bloodthirsty plague spreaders. Yes, so I think you raise a really important point that, like, while Murnau himself might have, you know, um, had Jewish friends, worked with Jewish artists, maybe even been a proponent of... um, Jewish liberation in his private life, we don't know, like, regardless of the intent of his work, its legacy does undeniably um, fall into like the legacy and history of anti-Semitism. And as you're saying, Mm -hmm. one of the things in the arts and entertainment that we think about and talk about a lot is the death of the author. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, like once something is given to an audience, um, what they do with it has just as much power, if not more so, than what the author of that work meant to do with it. Um, and so while it may be true that Murnau never thought of or considered or intended 
any of these visual elements, any of these plot elements to be taken as a justification for anti-Semitism. The reality remains that some people with significant power interpreted the film that way um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. used it as part of the propaganda machine that justified, you know, the atroci atrocities committed against Jewish people mm -hmm. um, in the decades to come. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yes. I think, yeah, questions of legacy um, are, you know, really important, um, especially when we talk about a film with as much reach um, and cultural, you know, cachet as something like Nosferatu. Um, so I think that that is a really important aspect of the legacy to talk about. Um, it would be a disservice um, to not talk about that. Um, but I also think that there are other legacies that this film has. Um, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered if you might want to, you know, what do you see as some of the other aspects of this film's legacy? Because it has played, it's played a massive role in culture. It's played a massive role in cinema. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I think, yeah, the legacy of this film, I think, can be, like, one of its legacies is very firmly that of, like, establishing a lot of the form, structure, motifs, themes, all of that when it comes to, like, horror as a genre in cinema, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to the depiction of a monster. I would say this is not only, um, you know, one of the first vampire films, I would say it's arguably one of the first creature feature films. I would agree um, with that assessment, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, um, like, when it comes to kind of the horror elements it establishes, I think... Uh, like a lot of it is, you know, how do we make the monster look as scary as we can? Mm -hmm. How does this monster move? What angles and framing do we utilize to give this creature a sense of kind of omnipotence or power or dominance? Um, a lot of things in that regard that I think would be utilized, mm -hmm. um, or not even utilized, just kind of establish how we, how horror films were made later on in the canon of mm -hmm. film yes and yeah. yeah so i think yeah that's definitely it's another of its most important legacy um which is just its significance in the genre of horror yeah i agree i totally agree and i think other ways that we see that is like this notion of a plot arc where like a creepy thing starts happening you think it has to do with a monster you start doing academic mm -hmm. and historical research on that monster in order to understand how to defeat it and then you like build and execute a plan based mm -hmm. on that um, investigation that you've done and that is something that we see over and over and over again mm -hmm. you know like in the ring she goes and she goes through the microfiche and you know finds the new news articles mm -hmm. in it you know, one of the boys goes to the library and he starts going through the archives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like we, we, you know, like Teen Wolf um, Styles mm -hmm. kind of takes on this role as the researcher <laughs> of the group where he figures out what's going on. And, um, you know, this idea of searching down dark ancient texts, this idea mm -hmm. of consulting with scientists, um, 
you're right that that is something that plays a role in the horror genre to this day. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think you're also right that this idea of developing the lore around the vampire, you know, that this is the first film and the first anything really that introduces this in, in Western canon, at least that introduces this idea of sunlight killing a vampire. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, this is our first time, like, seeing, you know, blood being drunk for, mm-hmm. um, for life-saving purposes. He um, did the thing. Yes, he did the thing. He did what we have determined is our deciding <laughs> yes. characteristic of a vampire film. He drinks blood. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, and, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that, um, yes, this film is very much establishing some of the tried-and-true beats that we hit in the horror genre but also in the vampire genre which has a lot of overlap with horror but is mm-hmm. absolutely could not be said to be completely confined to horror mm-hmm. absolutely and i'm kind of curious i think we touched on it a little bit earlier with the uh Nina character but i'm curious how you see the theme of sexuality sexual desire mm-hmm. in this film because that is a very prevalent theme in a lot of vampire media and like it, it starts early it's like fully at the front when we get to Bela Lugosi's Dracula mm-hmm. which is the idea of like mm, I don't want him to drink my blood but I kind of do yes um, yeah <laughs> granted Bela Lugosi maybe looks a little bit better than yeah I think I think <laughs> that that look. is I you know I think I'm very interested in sexuality in the body in cinema so i mm-hmm. absolutely appreciate this question um mm-hmm. because i think that this film primarily engages with repulsion and disgust mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that is a coin with two sides and the other side is desire and fascination and magnetism you know and so i think that the film for the first you know 75% of it we're very much in that realm of repulsion. We are repulsed by Orlok. We are um, meant to fear him and his space, his castle, what he does. Um, but, you know, like you said a little earlier, like there, e- even then there's the intimacy of like mm-hmm. desiring Jonathan Thomas's precious blood and sitting mm-hmm. with him by the fire and drinking mm-hmm. from his neck, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, um, I think that when we think about desire and sexuality in this film, it very much comes back to Ellen Nina. And, um, you know, there is something, there is an eroticism to her kind of in these shift dresses, these night dresses, like coming from her bed and kind of mm-hmm. dancing in these, in this sheer gown on the, on the kind of stone balcony, um, or her first trance state that she enters, I believe she almost um, falls off of the balcony of the building that she's in. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and just like the, her body language. Sorry, that was my partner's a very loud cat. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, so uh, uh, he agrees. Um, so, but just like the, you know, Ellen Mina's body language, the way that she swoons, the way that others often catch or hold her, um, you know, we, we see her not being able to stand on her own two feet a lot. Um, and so this idea of like the body that, um, mm-hmm. that 
you know, kind of is managed or kind of protected by others. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that that shot of Orlok's hands creeping up over her chest as she sleeps. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, while we see him, while we see Orlok drink from Jonathan Thomas, um, when he drinks from Ellen Mina, it is quite extended. And she lies Mm -hmm. in her bed and he is Mm -hmm. kneeling beside her with his face completely buried mm-hmm. in her neck. Um, mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. is that is a very intimate image. Um, and this idea of like the marriage bed kind of being perverted or invaded. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. And like what kind of body is it that is being desired, being yes. protected, being handled? Yes. It is a white middle-class married german woman from yes. 1838 yes um you know with a with a proper husband and a proper job mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Y- you know all of these things and you know we we only ever see her doing proper things we see her sewing mm-hmm. we see her sitting at the table drinking tea we see her like taking in the air at the beach um mm-hmm. you know you're right that she's very much exemplifying what a woman should be and how a woman should act even this idea of sacrifice that a yes. woman should give everything mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. her her body her blood her life that that all mm-hmm. of those things should be surrendered to this to her community and to her husband you know where she does these things in large part to protect jonathan um mm-hmm. and so that yeah. very much ties into our notions of who is desired um right. and you know, as the desired object, what women are expected to do um, and what women mm-hmm. are expected to sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. Although I still like the goth girl elements, the psychic elements. I fight yes. for that. I fight yeah, for that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, totally. And as we said, she's kind of the brains of the operation. Yeah. Professor, um, like Van Helsing. I like think of this line from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where like Dennis's character just is like, you know what, Frank? You have been useless. Like that is literally how I, <laughs> I just like think of that with um with the Van Helsing character in this. I'm just like, you have been useless. I don't know um, that the main characters even ever meet the Van Helsing yes. guy. Like he's just a yeah. total. He's just a total like, cutaway to. He's, <laughs> he never integrates into the and, action of the mm-hmm. story. And, and he's such a he's such a pivotal character in the book because in the book it's in an it's an entirely epistolary novel so the book mm-hmm. is kind of constructed the reader has to kind of figure out what's going on and only starts to click about halfway through because they're either reading Jonathan diary entries Mina diary entries letters newspaper mm-hmm. headlines then Van Helsing comes in and you know has his important you know I think he has his diary or his documentation um but yeah, no, he's such a, you know, he's an iconic character. I mean, like, you don't, you don't even, like, necessarily think of Dracula without Van Helsing. You kind of, you kind yes, of both yeah. a little bit. And we will um, be covering Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, we're very excited. <laughs> I'm very excited for that. I, I hope you are as well. I um, am. I have not seen it in years, so yeah. I am excited to revisit it. <laughs> yeah. And to your point about the Dracula being an epistolary novel, this I would not consider this an epistolary film in a sense, but we do yeah. have some references, you know, where 
Um, Jonathan Thomas writes this letter and Nina reads it and receives it later. We have the book, um, mm-hmm. the book of vampires. And, <laughs> and then we, have a, we do have a news article about the plague um, mm-hmm. that we get an insert shot of. And, um, you know, we get some of these other writings as well. So there is a gesture to that source material. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, it is not necessarily like you said, an epistolary novel. Honestly, the pacing of the film is interesting and it can be a little slow. It's incredibly slow. (laughs) Okay. I was trying to be nice. No, you're being far too generous. The film, (laughs) I'd say the first two thirds of the film is very, very slow. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's it's a slow one, and Renault likes his location shots. So yes, he, he's giving me some Malick vibes, some Terrence Malick, like, ooh, look at this bird flying through the trees. It's like, no, Renault, back to the plot. Yes, <laughs> and and I think I'd imagine that their hope was that they would build the slow sense of dread. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, but another thing, <laughs> another question is that like, does this film feel slow because we're a modern viewer? You know, like. When Casablanca was released, the average length of a shot was 30 seconds. And Mm -hmm. now the approximate average length of a shot is seven seconds. Films, yes, films have gotten faster. Um, Mm -hmm. Stories have gotten faster. Um, You know, we have less time. We have shorter attention spans. And so we feel that this film is very slow, but um, it's difficult to say how contemporary contemporary to the time of its release how those audiences felt maybe they thought this was a a real thriller (laughs) yeah a A real real, yeah a roller coaster you know arm seat grabber yes yeah um we should rate films on on how how tight you're gripping those armrests oh i love Um, that yes yeah um yeah, no, definitely. And like you said, um, you know, I, I love me an atmospheric film. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mind a slow burn, but I kind of wish this film did have a little more atmosphere. And mm-hmm. some of that is just due to the time it was made and the constraints they were under. Like, for example, all the scenes were during the day. Yeah. So yes. no nighttime shots. Um, a lot of the sets, while I said earlier, you know, great that they're location accurate, you know, they don't necessarily have kind of the flair or um, kind of subconscious, ooh, look at that, that an expressionist set has or, mm-hmm. you know, other expressionist films at the time. Um, there's not even really a, a specific, like, I don't know if gothic's accurate. I don't know, like, what, you know, architectural style you would call the houses or the castle. There but, is some variance. I wouldn't say that they're all speaking to the same yeah, kind of aesthetic well, or yeah, time cause, period. Um, right, because also the filmed in different locations as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, another thing is, I think I said earlier, is like, you know, I honestly, I feel like this film would have been more creepy or effective if I, if it didn't have a score. Cause I, interesting, yeah. Because I, 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 like the shots of him, you know, slowly being raised up on the ship or coming mm-hmm. up the stairs or like slowly walking i those scenes are iconic and i remember them so vividly but i think when i saw them like for the first time it was without any sound uh-huh. or music which i think kind of would add more to a creepy uh-huh. atmosphere so you're saying it, it's quite loud for a silent film 
Uh-huh. <laughs> it was so loud. I couldn't hear the actors. Yes. Um. <laughs> yeah. But no, I totally, I actually, in my notes that I was taking, I did mention that the score sometimes felt like it undermined the emotion of a scene, you know, where they would be like talking about like the dead on the ship and they're looking at the, the captain's diary and it's like three dead five dead and there's like a happy (laughs) flute playing in the background Um, yeah it's important to know when not to use music and sound yeah um but you know that's again we don't know what the original soundtrack or score that soundtrack yes yeah Yeah. that's entirely possible that that there were these silences and you know that's one of the things that we'll just never know um yeah yeah because you know, it's it's kind of a miracle in and of itself. We just have this movie as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Elliot, any favorite moments? That's um, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, I I have to say that I was. I think that the the silhouette shots that we get throughout mm, the film. Yeah. Um, I think you know the hands creeping up, his shadow on the stairs um there's another there's another really lovely silhouette that happens a bit earlier in the film Mm -hmm. um let me look for it because i um yes at 20 at around 21 minutes in we have a really beautiful silhouette um and yeah so i think that um i think that those were the high points of the film for me just in terms of um their beauty, but also just the knowledge of um, how hard those those shots are to get. Um, so yeah. And what yeah, about absolutely. you? What do you have a, a greatest hits? <laughs> greatest hits. Um, hmm. I think for me, it still stays the shots of Count Orlock, the kind of iconic shots of Max Shrek as this character either slowly approaching the camera or the maybe the one on the ship, but also I found a new appreciation for that low angle shot of him slowly walking across the ship. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, um, you know, kind of my biggest uh, appreciation or love of movies or the component of movies is the actors within it and the acting. I am always fascinated by an iconic performance, mm-hmm. a great actor, their choices, why some characters, you know, remain in the public the way that they do. And I think watching this movie again, I'm like, yeah, there's a good reason Nosferatu or this character of Count Orlock has remained so memorable because mm-hmm. Max Schreck did give an incredible performance. And like you said earlier, silent film acting is very different. We're kind of still coming come from that theatrical um, place. There wasn't dialogue. You had to really be more emotive and expressive. And so I appreciate that, you know, his performance here is very um, kind of reserved and uh, pulled back. It's, it's in a lot of the physicality and the stillness of it. And it's incredibly effective. And I'm like, yeah, I can see why this guy was like in a hundred <laughs> silent movies and had a yes. very... Yeah. long career and um i think by all accounts was was a really cool nice guy but also kind yes. of yeah. a little weird maybe like he he took his he was all about his career he like i don't have time for family <laughs> like <laughs> friends 
<laughs> Maybe. I could be wrong. If I'm getting this wrong, I apologize, Mac Shrek. Well, I, I just want to he... say I think you're a great actor. Yeah, I think there were some rumors about him. His last name the, the means terror, um, <laughs> which, which is interesting. But I totally agree on that, um, on the, the performance and this uh, kind of the res- the reservedness of the performance, especially in contrast to Jonathan Thomas, oh, who whose face is doing the most at all times yeah. is really, and just very, very like, much more free and open with his body, mm-hmm. much more kind of bombastic body movement and facial mm-hmm. expression. And so you're right that that contrast to um, to Orlock is it turned up even more so, I think. Um, yeah. And definitely there's, I think that the slowness of it kind of speaks to this idea of like, being dead and mm-hmm. um and being ancient you know that like that that orlock is kind of like i don't have to move fast i'm gonna get you anyway yeah. I'm, I'm a thousand years <laughs> exactly. old yeah yeah um, i move with intention yeah exactly um yeah he has a very um mindfulness approach to his life he's yeah yeah <laughs> Um, what is the sleep of the dead but meditation? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Yes. yes. Exactly. I think that concludes our first ever episode on Nosferatu. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And next week, we will be talking about our um, first on-screen Dracula that will speak in what an iconic speaking voice he has thank you for listening to another episode of this podcast sucks find us where you get your podcasts follow us on social media and give us a like we'd love to hear from you guys and remember stay bloodthirsty catch our next episode on 1931's dracula